Welcome to Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. I recently took this great course led by Dr. Kathy Murphy, who is a neuroscientist who specializes in brain development in canines. And it, it really was a lot of fun and really interesting. I draw upon the info from this course to explain why your adolescent dog suddenly questions everyone and everything, pushes the limits, shows signs of anxiety or aggression, and is good one minute and then completely not the next. I then explain why four common methods are ineffective during the adolescent stage based on brain development, and why some methods are effective during some stages while others are not. If you are struggling to understand your adolescent dog's behavior, if you're blaming yourself or confused and frustrated, this is the episode for you. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and expert in canine cognitive behavioral therapy. What I am not is a neuroscientist. So if you could see me, there would be this big neon sign above my head that is a disclaimer. So the information I'm providing comes from Kathy's course, but also comes from other sources as well. It's available on the internet. Links are provided in the show notes. So Kathy's course was divided into four sections, puppy, adolescent, adult, and senior. I'm focusing on the adolescent brain because I specialize in adolescent dog behavior. Many people see changes in behavior as their dog reaches around six months of age. These behaviors are often described as defiant, stubborn, reactive, and the dogs are often described as uncontrollable, silly, being similar to that of a teenager, having no regard for repercussions, they're unpredictable, meaning what went well one minute does not go well the next without any rhyme or reason. So think of a teenager who was raised well and suddenly acts without thinking of the consequences. They know it's wrong to sneak out the window and steal dad's car, but they do it anyway because this will lead to fun. They don't care about losing their allowance or getting grounded. They may question what will happen if, say, for example... On a different occasion, there may be late one hour for their curfew, but they try it anyway. They may not know the consequences or simply not care. Fun outweighs the consequences. In fact, risk may add to that fun factor. Dogs know it's wrong to take socks. Or they know their person is trying to prevent barking, but they don't care. Because the sock is fun, being chased is fun, and that squirrel must be barked at. These dogs are acting purely based on emotions without thinking about consequences. During the adolescent stage, there is also commonly signs of anxiety and aggression or behaviors commonly associated with those emotions. It's easy to blame upbringing, especially if the dog is a rescue dog, or to blame a specific incident in the past or during puppyhood. These can and often do have effects on behavior because dogs have memory and they have emotions, which are cognitive functions. But even with dogs who have had fortunate upbringing, changes in the adolescent stage still occur. Adolescent dogs react purely based on the need to achieve a goal that results in their safety and happiness and for survival purposes. It is a very immediate reaction leading people to say things like, oh, it came out of nowhere. In fact, it was triggered. But the brain doesn't take the time to reset and process. It's just purely a reaction. The behaviors and the reactivity vary between dogs, 
but the reason is not solely upbringing. It's the brain. So let's talk about the brain. During puppyhood, there are neurons that are fun and exciting, and they create curiosity and the ability to learn and feel happiness. There is also fear and cautiousness because everything is new. So if they're a bit overwhelmed or anxious, a puppy may hide behind their person or go into a crate. During adolescence, change in the neurogenesis, which is the growth and development of nervous tissues, leads to a decreased ability to cope, especially with stress. The hippocampus is the part of the brain that controls thinking and stores memory. It literally chooses what is important. It borders the amygdala, which controls emotions, particularly fear. So if the hippocampus thinks it's important to remember that bikes are dangerous and men with hats are not nice and that lunging and barking keeps these horrible things away, then the hippocampus sends this information to the amygdala, which causes the dog to react in a way that ensures safety. Anxiety increases and fear increases, or it appears as though their anxiety and fear increase because they're reacting without having the skills to manage the stress causing the anxiety and fear. So the reaction overrides the ability to manage the stress factors. The connectivity between the two brain functions does not act fast enough to have a calm decision override a reaction. Inhibitory neurons, ones that allow us to think before reacting, essentially they counterbalance excitable neurons, these develop at about 21 years old in the human, and they develop at around two to three years-ish in dogs. And this is why the adolescent stage is challenging. So let's talk about solutions, or more accurately, common solutions that may or may not be effective. So we're going to start with number one, counter-conditioning. Counter-conditioning is a method that relies on desensitization and associative techniques. Many of my clients have tried counter-conditioning, and I find it to be less effective during adolescent than adulthood. So if they're trying it in adulthood, it might work. But in the adolescent stage, I get a lot of clients who have dogs in the adolescent stage that have tried counter-conditioning. And Dr. Kathy Murphy also says this in her course. And she uses her own dog, who is fearful, or who was, I'm sorry, that dog has passed away. But she did have a video, and that dog was fearful. And she demonstrated using counter-conditioning that was effective when that dog was an adult, but not when that dog was an adolescent. I'm going to use the example of leash reactivity towards dogs who are in a yard while on a dog walk with a dog that is fearful of dogs. So counter-conditioning would use a positive object such as a treat as a way of the dog to associate a positive such as the treat to the dogs in the yard so that they, they associate them as both being good things. Desensitization essentially is the repetition of this with dogs in different yards. Because desensitization relies on memory, it's necessary for the hippocampus to find this information important enough to store and send to the amygdala, which it often chooses not to do. Connecting one dog in a yard to all dogs in yards, as associative techniques are supposed to do, is a challenge for adolescent dogs. They may remember one dog in one yard, but then it's back to square one for each dog in different yards leading to dogs being fine with one dog and then not with the next one. There's no consistency, and that's when people say, ah, it worked, and then it didn't work. Associative techniques rely on dogs connecting the object that they like with the one that they fear. An adolescent dog may take the treat but not make that connection. 
the treat becomes simply more of a reward or a distraction. And we know with adolescent dogs and humans, rewards are often overrode by reactivity that is way more fun or reactivity that's caused by emotions such as fear. Number two, impulse control. In recent years, impulse control has become popular. Impulse control simply relies on using the stay or wait command to prevent a reactive behavior or distracting with treats, for example, to prevent jumping or lunging or even biting. The intent is to proactively prevent the behavior, but adolescent dogs do not see a reason to change the behavior. It can be effective in a controlled situation, but increasingly less effective in high stimulus situations because the dogs do not care about doing the wrong behavior. Impulse control simply stops a physical action but does not change perception. Three, canine enrichment. This has also grown in popularity. It can form a bond and encourage decision-making through options, such as choosing which direction to go on a walk or which toy to pick. The decision-making is more of a game and in controlled settings, but they're not really intended to be behavioral rehabilitation techniques or to change perception. Four, operant conditioning. Operant conditioning uses reinforcements to encourage and discourage behaviors. I talk about operant conditioning in season one of this podcast. Kathy showed us in her course the effectiveness of positive reinforcement training in puppyhood and that this can decline in adolescence because positive reinforcement is designed to teach. Dogs in the adolescent stage often know right from wrong. Due to excitable neurons, they don't care about the reinforcement, or at least not to the level to override reacting without thinking of the consequences. I see this every day with my clients and their dogs. Literally overnight, methods that were effective during puppyhood are not during adolescence. Other forms of conditioning training, such as distraction training and replacement training using treats, are no longer effective for the same reason. Kathy recommends continuing using positive reinforcement training in the adolescent stage. But do we do this with teenagers? Do we treat them the same as we treat tweens or children? No, we parent differently. If dogs do not care about the consequences, we cannot continue to use positive reinforcement training. Her suggestion to continue with positive reinforcement training is simply and admirably to prevent people and trainers from going to the dark side and using negative reinforcements that cause physical and emotional harm. However, when we continue to enforce positive reinforcement training, in my extensive studies with hundreds of dogs per year for decades, dogs perceive us of having no idea how to relate or communicate with them, and that we do not respect their emotions and intelligence. This leads to increased unwanted behavior, including aggression. When this happens, If we do not switch to canine cognitive behavioral therapy, this often leads to trainers and people using negative methods. They'll use shock collars and other harmful tools and techniques. And they justify this because positive reinforcement training is ineffective. So essentially, Dr. Murphy's advice to stick with positive reinforcement training can lead to the exact results she's trying to prevent. Kathy also suggests increasing exercise because it is scientifically proven that exercise produces new neurons that increases neurogenesis. Absolutely. The catch-22, of course, is that this is challenging. It's challenging to watch dogs if they're reactive or they just suddenly stop listening in the dog park or they're reactive towards other dogs. 
So in the end, Kathy suggests patience because the inhibitory neurons develop later. And when that happens, then other techniques kick in and just the, the inhibitory neurons being there help to solve a lot of the problems. She also suggests coping. In other words, just tolerate and be compassionate, adjust your lifestyle. These suggestions are often unrealistic. And although patience and coping mechanisms may be necessary with any training method, if one doesn't see progress and instead sees regression, this leads to dogs being surrendered and euthanized. The solution, of course, is incorporating canine cognitive behavioral therapy into the adolescent stage. Canine CBT harnesses cognitive skills and changes perception to change behavior. The platform skills change the dog's perception of the human and of our ability to understand and communicate with them at their level. The skills are developed to stimulate thought process that encourage decision-making before reacting. So we're actually getting that to happen even before those inhibitory neurons are developing. We then take these skills to challenging situations and dogs choose to change their behavior. There is no one right way to work with a dog. I have applied canine CBT to thousands of adolescent dogs and I've had huge success. Yet I still have a lot to learn about the dog's brain and why some methods are effective at certain ages and others not so much. This intrigues me. I want to learn more. This episode was simply a brief overview, and I even have questions about some of the info in the, in the course and what's provided and what's online. I'm looking to connect with neuroscientists and animal behavior experts to combine our knowledge to gain a well-rounded, complete understanding of dogs and how they think and learn, especially in the adolescent stage. Unfortunately, Dr. Kathy Murphy claims not to have time, and of course, she has a team of positive reinforcement trainers who seem to be fine limiting themselves and the trainers that look to them for the newest advancements with less than effective solutions. You can now confidently not blame yourself if you are struggling with your adolescent dog. It is not your fault. So please reach out to me with any questions or comments, or if you would like to work together, please visit my website www.upperdogology.com. Please check out the many podcasts that I have honored to be a guest on. And I was also re recently interviewed by Mark Beckoff in Psychology Today magazine. And a last reminder, I will be speaking at the American Behavior Society Conference on the July 20th weekend. Please share this episode and please let your veterinarian or resource you look to for advice about this podcast and canine CBT. The dogs, thank you. Big shout out to Danielle Borgiord and the Jeff Murtick Band. Enjoy your learning journey.